good to worship with you this morning. Glad that you're here. Uh, Palm Sunday morning makes this week a little bit different week for us in terms of schedule and all that's in the worship guide, but just wanted to remind you, if you haven't read in there yet, that we've got a good Friday service this Friday at 6.30, and we'd love for you to join us with that. We'll be focusing the whole time in that service on the cross, on the death of Jesus, um, scripture and song. It'll probably be about a 45-minute service, and so we'd love for you to bring your kids in with you. Um, everybody's welcome, but we will have child care uh, for nursery and preschool if you would prefer to do that. Um, if you do want child care for that service, if you could let us know on the tear-off portion of the, the bulletin this morning, that would help us plan. Uh, but you're welcome to bring everybody in with you if you want to, and we hope we'll see you here at 6.30 Friday night. And then next Sunday morning, on Easter Sunday morning, um, we're going to, today we're in Acts 23 and 24. You can go ahead and turn there if you want to, which puts us in Acts 25 and 26 for next week. And I'm just going to go ahead, like up front right now, and give you just one extra homework assignment for this week going into next week. You know, every week I hope that you're, you're reading ahead this passage, studying on your own, asking God to speak to you, both in your community groups and on your own, um, and asking the question that we ask every week, what's this teach us about God? And if this is true about God, what's he saying to us right now, to our hearts? But next week, I'm going to add one thing. There is a verse in Acts 25 and 26 that made it the perfect place for us to be on Easter Sunday morning. So I'm going to see if you can just flag that verse for next week. Pick out the one that's like, why was it perfect timing for us to hit 25 and 26 on Easter Sunday? Um, and then we'll, we'll work through that next Sunday morning. But we're not there yet. Today, we're in Acts 23 and 24. Paul has gone back to Jerusalem. He's been arrested, he's on trial now, and we're kind of in the middle of his trials where we're picking up today. And so as I read these two chapters, be listening for what does this teach us about God? Who he is, how he works, how he works in his people's lives. And for those of you that have been with us as we've been walking through or sprinting through the past few weeks, the book of Acts, um, don't be afraid to connect this to the whole context of the whole book. Everything that we've seen, just this story that God has been telling us as he's been building his church. Um, and so what's this teach us about God? What's he saying to us this morning? Right now we're going to pray, and we're going to ask that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see those type of truths about God in this text, and that he would teach us on a deep spiritual level and work in our hearts the way that only he can. So if you'll pray that with me right now, then we'll read and jump in. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that you are the Lord and the God and the King over all the earth and that your ways are awesome that every word that we just sang from Psalm 8, that it is true about you and that you have shown over and over and over and over throughout history just how true it is of you. And then that you are that great God and you come and meet with people like us in a moment like this. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. And Father, I ask that right now, in the name of Jesus, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that you will pour out your spirit and that he will be the master teacher during this time, that he will teach us spiritual truths with spiritual words that work in our hearts the way that you want to, to make us your people and build us into your church and to accomplish your work in your world. And so, Father, teach us right now by your spirit from your word as only you can. Open us up to the truth of your word and open the truth of your word up to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. Acts 23, starting in verse 1. This is Paul on trial. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee. 
a son of Pharisees, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you've informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, and on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, 
that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So that's where we stop today. We covered two whole years right then. What's that teach us about God? What stands out to you? And I've got a few things I'll point out that stood out to me this week as well. <laughs> Following Jesus, Tyson, I'm just going to quote you directly. Ain't easy. No, sometimes following Jesus is a really hard thing in this world and in this life. Um, and he, he never, if you go back and read everything that he says in the Gospels, he never promises that it will always be easy. He promises that it will be worth it. He promises that he'll be with us. Um, he promises that none of the hard things can ultimately thwart his plans. Um, but that doesn't mean that here and now in this life it's always easy. And you know, one of the reasons it's really important to recognize this first truth is that if we come with this mindset of if I follow Jesus, it'll be easy. You know, or if I follow Jesus, he'll protect me from all the hard things. Or if I follow Jesus, these good things should happen. If that's what we're thinking and we're not hearing the things he's really said, then when hard things happen, when bad things happen, when it's not easy, what happens to us? Like we either get really, really discouraged, like it shouldn't be this way, or we start to blame ourselves, like, oh, I must not have done the right thing or this wouldn't have happened. And there's a danger that if we were doing the right thing and that's made it more difficult, that we'll turn away from what was the right thing because we think, well, I'm sure I must have made a wrong decision. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have gone that way. If I had, this wouldn't be going on, so let's change directions now. And this was really where Jesus wanted you to be going. You know, if, if Paul said, well, if I had been following Jesus the way I should, I never would have gotten arrested. I wouldn't be in prison. These things wouldn't be happening. And he says, so I, I've got to change what I'm doing. Well, he was doing the right thing. He was doing what Jesus called him to do. So you either get discouraged or, or you get you know, pulled off track by saying, this is what I was actually supposed to be doing. Or you get really bitter and angry toward Jesus. Angry toward Jesus. Because you know, we're not really living in this relationship of grace yet. We're still living in this transaction. Hey, Jesus, I did what I was supposed to, and this is what you give me? You, know, you, you owe me something else, and we set ourselves up above him. Like he's, he's a debtor to us, and we've worked, and we've earned our wages, and we expect him to give us our wages. The last thing in the world you want from Jesus is what you deserve. <laughs> the last thing you want from Jesus is wages. And instead, it's Jesus, you have promised You've made a promise that you will be with me in this, that you are worth this, that you are better than this, and what you're going to bring out of this 
will be so beautiful and so glorious when you redeem it all and bring it together that this, it won't just be that this is worth it, that that will somehow be better because this is so hard right now. And when we believe all that, then we're able. We're able to trust him. Our faith perseveres and endures through these hard times. And sometimes they're really, really hard. I mean, I know we read it. I don't know how, how long did it take me right then. Ten minutes to read two chapters. And it's so easy to read that in ten minutes. But hey, we got that part of the story. That was two years. Like, yeah, two years plus. It's, it's two years that he just left in prison. You know, he's already, how long is it? Like all last week? All next week? <laughs> and you, know, you get two years in, and I can understand how it would be like, are you here? Are you doing this? If you don't remember the things he's already told us up front and that he has promised that he's here and he's promised that he's working through this. And, of course, we're going to see how he keeps working through this. But, yes, following Jesus isn't easy. It is really hard sometimes. But Jesus is better and Jesus is bigger and Jesus is worth it. What else? Other truths about God. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> sometimes God uses chaos to bring about his purpose and specifically what Darren was pointing out today was right here where Paul so you've got these religious Jews right, who know the Bible really well who know the old, what we call the Old Testament now, but know the Old Testament really, really well. Like they're, they're well-informed, well-educated. They're, they're dedicated religious people. But within them, as always happens when you have religion that is missing Jesus, they have developed these other aspects of their religion that are, that are their main identity now instead of Jesus. And so the Pharisees have said, we believe in all the supernatural things, angels, spirits, demons, resurrection. The Sadducees said, we don't believe in any of that. And, and neither one of them at this point, those groups, believe in Jesus as the Messiah, as the one that God was promising in their whole Bible, and as the one who has fulfilled their whole Bible. And so because they, they haven't seen Jesus yet, they haven't looked to Jesus, with all of their intellectual knowledge, all of their religious knowledge, none of it has penetrated their hearts to the place where they have a right relationship with God. And missing that piece, they misinterpret everything else. Right? And they overemphasize all these pieces of their religion that, that it's it's good to know these things, to know whether or not they're true, but if they're not connected to Jesus and in light of who Jesus is, at, in the end, all it does is either puffs you up like, I know better than them or I know better than them. And so you've got these two groups now that disagree on all these aspects of their religion. And the one thing they've got in common is we hate Jesus and anybody that talks about Jesus. So we're united in our opposition to Paul. But then Paul comes in and this is just too easy to do this with Christless religion. And it happens to us when our focus isn't on Jesus and when it's on all these secondary issues and we aren't seeing the secondary issues in relation to Jesus. It's not that they're unimportant, but you can only see them the right way connected to Jesus because the deal is the Pharisees are right about the angels and the demons and the spirits and the resurrection, but they don't see any of that in relation to Jesus. And so it's still distorted and skewed in their world. But Paul comes in and all he has to do is, he basically says, I know how each of you identify yourselves. I know what's important to you. I know what you value, what makes you feel worthy in your religion. And he just presses on this point. And he's like, hey, it's because of the resurrection that I'm here today. And the Pharisees and Sadducees stop fighting together against Paul and they turn on each other. And the Pharisees are like, hey, we, he's right about that. And this is really important to us. You must be wrong. And the Sadducees, so they start fighting with each other. And it does look like chaos within this Christless religion. Like these religious people who aren't seeing Jesus yet, but God is still at work in the middle of that. Right? Their mistakes, their misunderstanding, their errors, none of that is thwarting God's plans right here. And we're going to see that play out over and over and over over the next couple of chapters, the two that we read today and the next couple next week. But I think it's great for us to see that on a human level, when it looks like stuff is out of control, it looks like stuff is chaotic, and it looks like stuff is falling apart, and, and it looks like all the, the wrong people are in charge, and all the wrong people are making all the wrong decisions, and they've got all the power to carry out all their wrong decisions. In the middle of all of that, God's still at work, and he's moving the pieces, and, and he's doing something that they don't see, 
and they can't stop. And so, yeah, sometimes God uses chaos to bring about his purpose because, and Darren said, like seeming chaos. Chaos isn't chaos for God. But what else? Other truths about God. Okay, what may point us to it? And so say your truth again. That, uh, that humanity will protest conviction because as they're convicted, as Paul was talking to them, they're convicted. Yeah. They, they would protest conviction to be comfortable. They'd rather just be comfortable. Yeah, and so you see it here with the Jews, and then on down again, you see it at the very end. That's why I asked you, I wasn't sure which place you were going because this is what popped in my mind. When Paul is preaching to Felix, yeah. and Felix, Felix is alarmed. You know, Paul say this righteousness, self-control, the coming judgment. Paul's telling the truth about, you know, he starts with, sorry, Paul's preaching about faith in Jesus. And he comes to Felix and he's explaining, like, here's why faith in Jesus is crucial for you. Because there, God has a standard of righteousness and self-control that he's, he's going to judge your life. Have you lived up to his standard of righteousness? Have you lived the way that he calls you to live? You know, ha- have you followed God's law? Of course, the answer for all of us is no. But as Paul talks to Felix, Felix is alarmed. Like, I know that I don't live up to that. Paul's given him the answer. He's like, but here's the, the answer for you, because you haven't. You will never, ever get there on your own. But Jesus has. And God will give to you the righteousness of Jesus. Credit it to your account. Treat it like it's yours if you trust in Jesus. That's what faith in Christ Jesus is right there. But Felix... Instead of surrendering himself to Jesus, saying, I can't, and Jesus can, and I trust who Jesus is, he says, stop talking to me about this. <laughs> it makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to hear this. Right, go away. Don't talk to me anymore right now, because I'm really convicted. I'll call you back sometimes, but I'll call you back because I hope that you bribe me to get me to let you out of prison. I don't really want to hear you talk about Jesus anymore. And the same thing up here, the Jews want to get rid of Paul. They don't want to hear what he's saying about Jesus. And they're so determined to not hear what he says about Jesus, that they take this, like, I would rather not eat and drink anymore than have to listen to Paul talk about Jesus anymore. Um, And so humanity is strongly opposed to, I'm going to say true conviction, because of what it says about us, what it reveals in us, what it makes us see in our own hearts, um, and prefers to be comfortable, and specifically comfortable in their own self-sufficiency, and you could say self-righteousness there, and I'm going to put in parentheses, illusion of. Like we'll deceive ourselves into I'm good enough, I'm self-righteous, or I can handle this, I'm self-sufficient. And just leave, leave me in my illusion. Don't tell me the truth, don't shatter that. And if you come, when you come and you speak the truth to me about the fact that I'm not self-sufficient and I'm not self like I, I, I don't have righteousness and sufficiency in myself, I would rather not hear that truth And I'll do all sorts of things and play all sorts of games to shield myself from having to look at who I really am in light of who God really is. And the scary thing is with the Jews, again, we're talking about really religious people who knew the Bible really well, who were at the temple every single week. You know who that's like, right? It's us this morning. Like A lot of us are here every single week studying the Bible together. A lot of us know the Bible really, really well. And they found ways to use that to guard their hearts against the truth of who they were. But instead of it exposing their hearts and revealing who they were and bringing them to faith in Jesus and their desperate need for Jesus, their religion became another mask that they could wear to pretend that they were good, to pretend that they were right with God. And we, we project it in all sorts of ways in our world.
And just to recognize this truth that Eric gave us, how natural that is to your heart, how natural it is to, to present yourself as better than you really are, and how natural it is to oppose anything that would reveal who you really are. Like we don't want to be brought out into the light. We don't want to be exposed. I mean, we've built an entire world now on the idea of I'll present my best self on social media. Like, I've heard people call it fake book instead of Facebook, Insta lie instead of Instagram, and that's what it is. How quick can I get out here and instantly lie? How quick can I get out here and fake who I am? How can I pick these things that I want to show everybody else to project a, a fabricated me to the world? Instead of the, the honest truth of this is who I am without Jesus. And this is how much I need him and how desperate I am for him. And he's my only hope and he's the only answer. You see, for those things to be true about Jesus... He's my only hope. He's the only answer. It also reveals that certain things are true about me that I don't want to admit are true about me. And so then I get opposed to these truths about Jesus, even in my own religion. Like, I want my religion to build me up and make me feel good about me. And that's not how Jesus does it. Jesus comes to break you down and show you who you really are and then to teach you that the only way that you feel good about you is in him. It's not because of you, it's because of him, because he is the God of the universe and the King of kings, and he has said something about you. You haven't proved it, you haven't earned it. He has come. You think about who he is, and he comes and he says, you're worth it to me. That's what he says about you, his declaration. He says, you're worth my life, you're worth my blood. You're worth me leaving the glory of heaven. And find your value in that, find your identity in that, and then you're set free from all this other stuff. You're set free from pretending and faking. You're set free from having to perform and make everybody think that you actually are good enough because you're afraid if you're not good enough, you have to face the fact that you're not good enough. And Jesus tells you up front, I know you're not good enough. And I love you anyway. So you're free to admit that you aren't good enough. Like you won't lose him when you admit the truth about who you are. He won't walk away from you. He says, I know and I already love you. It's done. It's settled. Will you believe that and will you live in that truth and will you learn to live in that freedom? And then, in that freedom, you get to be who he's calling you to be. There's a boldness that grows out of that and there's a love inside of you. Now, now you can really love other people because you don't have to spend all your time manipulating and managing what they'll think of you. You're freed from You know what he thinks of you. And so you can love them regardless of what they think of you. All right, what else? No matter how hard things get, we should choose to do it God's way. That again, like in that darkest moment where it doesn't seem like anything's working out. It doesn't seem like it's going the way that you think it should be going. And it doesn't seem like God's doing what he said he would do. Like That's what it looks like. <laughs> the truth is he's still at work. He's still accomplishing his purposes. He's still in control. He's still keeping his promises and believing that. Like the, the faith in the fact that he really does do what he has said and he's still at work means that in this moment where it looks really, really hard and it is really, really hard and it doesn't look like there's any way this can turn out right, we still believe what he said. We still trust that somehow he's going to pull out this moment where it all comes together and we're like, I didn't think there was any way that this stuff could come together. Like there was no way, from what I could see, humanly speaking, that this could work out, except for the fact that he already said that it would. And when you can't see anything else, keep believing that. Keep believing that that is who he is. And what it's like, you know, it's like that moment when, if God's the sun, you know, this, like when the sun's shining, it's like, okay, I can see everything. Like it makes the light of the sun helps me see and I see what it's like and it makes sense. 
But this huge storm comes, and it's pitch black, middle of the night, clouds in the sky, and it's all dark. You can't see anything right there. But the question is the sun still there? Yes. Like the clouds don't put out the sun. The storm doesn't put out the sun. You may not see it, but it's still there. It hasn't changed at all. And even when the earth spins and you're on the other side of the world and there's an entire world between you and the sun, the sun's still there. It's still there. It's still shining the exact same way. Nothing's changed about it. Whether you see it or not, its reality doesn't depend on what you see. God is still there. Nothing's changed about him. Like the promises that he makes in the daylight, they're true in the dark. When you can see it all and you believe him, it's just as true when you can't see any of it and you should believe him. What else? God provides boldness and incredible patience. When we're faithful. Trusting him, relying on him for things that we wouldn't have within ourselves. Um, I've been thinking about this for a long time in Acts, and I'm going to connect us there today. Paul gives us a little bit of commentary in 2 Corinthians on what was going on for him emotionally. Like we've, you know, we've seen him, it's been from chapter 13 until now, just over and over and over. Opposition, one city people threw rocks at him until they thought he was dead. He's been arrested multiple times, thrown in prison, beaten, whipped, just riots, people trying to tear him apart. And it's easy to read the way it plays out in Acts, and it's like, Paul's not like me. Like, he just takes it and goes on, and like, it, just, it doesn't bother him the way it would bother me. And we, we, can, we can superhero Paul and, and just read like, Luke's report of it and not realize Paul experienced this the way that you would. I promise. And so just listen to what he says right here in 2 Corinthians when he talks about this is what it was like for him to go through these things. He says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Does it sound like it was easy for him to deal with that? Like, he was just like, yeah, this is what happened. I took it. I never blinked. I never flinched. It was just fine. No, like, this was, ex- he, he's like, we despaired even of life. Like, we just thought there's no way we can handle this. It's going to break us. It's too much. We're going to die here. It's done. That, that's what he felt emotionally. Great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. We can't take it anymore. So that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Like, this is, like, emotionally, read that back into these stories and know that this is how Paul's agonizing, what he's wrestling with, and how his emotions are out of control. Like, his, his heart is betraying him, right? It was awful. It was more than I could take. My heart was breaking under the pain and the opposition and, and all of it. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul saw that in all of it, everything that all of his enemies were doing, all the opposition that he faced, that God was still the one at work in Paul. And he was, God was saying, I'm taking all of this opposition and all the worst stuff that happens to you, and I've got a great purpose in your heart for you. I've got something. I have to give you things that you can't handle. Right? Do you hear him saying that right there? to teach you not to rely on yourself, but on God. I promise you, the natural bent of our heart is, if God only gives you stuff that you can handle, you'll just try to handle it. If God gives you stuff that's not too much for you, you won't rely on him. Like, you will not. Maybe you will, but prove me wrong if you want to, all right? 
that God gives you easy stuff and you rely on him anyway, that you learn this lesson without him breaking you first, that you're the one person in the history of the world other than Jesus that does this, I'm going to say that none of us get there without the suffering, without the breaking, without the hardship, without being overwhelmed and brought to the place where it's like, God, I can't do this. I can't take this. I've tried everything I know to try and none of it's enough. And you are my only hope. Like I give it up, I, give, I let go, I give myself up, and you're my only hope. And Paul's saying that in all the worst stuff that happened to him, that's the good that God was bringing about. He was teaching Paul, strong, religious, self-righteous, self-reliant, Pharisee Paul, right? He would, he would just sprint it to the top of his religion and accomplish more than anybody of his age before Jesus came and broke him. He was teaching Paul, I don't need your strength, but I'll use your weakness. I don't need you to be enough for me. I'll be enough for you. And you've got to get to the place where you know that you need me, that you can't handle it, and I can't. And so that thing, God never gives you more than you can handle. That's not in the Bible. Not that way. God never gives you more than he will give you the grace in him to handle. But God's goodness to you is that he all the time gives you more than you can handle. Live up to the law. That's more than you can handle. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's more than you can handle. Save yourself. Fix yourself. Heal your broken heart. That's more than you can handle. And he will give you all of that to say, you can't handle it, but I can and I will and I promise to stop relying on yourself and come rely on me. Stop trusting in yourself and come trust in me. He will break you because it's best for you to be broken if that's what brings you to him. And so in this, like when we read Acts and we read Paul, don't read this superhero guy who's like, just, he was strong enough to handle it. He wasn't. Like, he wasn't bold because of him. He didn't have incredible patience because of him. God had brought him to a place of faith, like faithful, full of faith. He had broken self-reliance in Paul. He had broken Paul's trust in himself. That's what he's saying right there in 2 Corinthians 1. Paul's saying, God brought me to a place where I could not endure it anymore. My heart could not bear it so that I would learn to rely on him and not on myself. And so when Paul came to that place of faith, utter dependence on God, dead to himself and finding life in God, then God produced in Paul the boldness and the incredible patience that you see. God said, okay, now that you're not relying on your boldness, I'll give you my boldness and it'll be enough. Now that you're not relying on your own patience, I'll give you my patience, and it'll be enough. Now that you're not relying on your own accomplishments and your own achievements and your own strength, I'll give you my accomplishments and my achievement and my strength, and it'll be enough. And so, yes, Paul has what he needs. He has what he needs because of who God is and because God gives him himself. And he said, we felt the sentence of death, but God raises the dead. Like, we could not avoid death. There was nothing we could do. But God can handle death. And so, yeah, full of faith, faithful, trusting Jesus. And then God provides what he needs, even in the hardest moments of his life. The moments that are too much for him, the moments that his heart can't handle, the moments that emotionally crush him. And God is there with him and still giving him what he needs as he's being crushed. What else? All right, two. I talked long enough that he had plenty of time to think. Jesus makes a promise right here to Paul. And it is, like, it's already dark for Paul, right? He's arrested. His own people. Like these, th these Pharisees are probably the Pharisees that he grew up with, right? he studied with. 
And it was like, here they all were, your A's and your B's and your C's. And Paul's the valedictorian of the Pharisee class. He tells us that in Galatians. Like he'd advanced beyond any of them. And now here they are, despising him, rejecting him, opposing him, throwing him in prison. Like his own people are turning against him. This looks really dark already, and it's about to get way worse. Like this is the beginning of the next two years. And when the two years are up, by the way, he's still in prison. It's not like, yeah, he's in prison for two years. and then it, he's, When we finish today, he's still in prison. When we start tomorrow, I mean next Sunday, he's still in prison. But Jesus shows up in this really dark moment in prison, in the cell. And it's, it is interesting to me that out of all the times that Paul's out free and he's seeing all these, I mean, I, he's seeing God work among the Gentiles and all these churches built. But here Jesus shows up in a really intimate way in his hardest moment, in his darkest moment. And he makes him a promise up front for everything you're about to go through. I promise you I'm not done. I promise you this is me. Like, yeah, you, you had to testify about me in Jerusalem. I brought you back here to do that. And I know you've been arrested because of it. But I promise you, you also will testify about me in Rome. This is not the end of the story. I don't know what your darkest moments have been, but I know that in my darkest moments, Jesus has showed up in grace and mercy like that. And he's whispered to my heart. And he's always been there. And he's always been faithful to do what he says. You think about Paul, two pieces of his story. His sin originally in opposing Jesus and opposing the church. Arresting Christians, voting to have them executed. That's Paul's sin in opposition to Jesus. And now other people sin against Paul at this point, right? Neither one of those things were too big for Jesus to handle. Neither one of those things were so much that Jesus was like, Paul, I'm done with you. He shows up. He said, now, Paul, I've done this so far, and I am going to do this. I am going to use you. What you've done, that hasn't stopped me from using you. What they're trying to do right now, that won't stop me from using you. And so whether your darkest moments are things that you've done to yourself or your darkest moments are things that somebody else has done to you, I promise you, Jesus is there. He is with you. And he has words of grace and mercy and encouragement and promise for you. I don't even know if I wrote your truth down there, Adam. <laughs> However you want to say it. God is gracious to give us what we need when we need it. I want to come back to that thought in just a second, but give us your second truth. So the second truth is that goodness and righteousness only come from God. And the, where I get that is right after that in verse 12. The, the people who, their whole purpose in life is to follow the law. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Adam's talking about like these Jews again, and I hope I've described it enough for you this morning. These really religious people who have, at that point, the whole Bible, like the Old Testament, is the Bible um, up to that point in time. They have, and it's not just like they have it; they know it. They memorize it. They write it over and over and over. Like that's what the scribes, the scribes just set and wrote it over and over and over every day. They live by it, and yet. Like this external expression of obedience doesn't produce real goodness and righteousness in them. Like they are not the source of goodness and righteousness. And the way that it gets exposed here is how far they're willing to go in their opposition. I mean, you could say their opposition to Jesus when they're opposing Paul because clearly like they can't be right with God and opposing the work of God in this way. 
But even more than that, the things that they're willing to do to Paul that aren't true. Right? False charges and lie about him. And, and then to manipulate behind the scenes and plan murder. And to try to you know, undermine the Roman government, the ruling authority at that time, to get what they want. Because they have set themselves up as their own standard of goodness and righteousness. And they've set themselves up as their own source of goodness and righteousness. And so nothing's going to threaten that now. Whatever we have to do to continue to feel that this is who we are. Like this is what man-made religion does. And this is why it's fundamentally opposed to Jesus and his gospel. This idea that it can only come from God. He must give to you what he wants from you. He has to be the source of it. You have to be connected to him. You know, Jesus says that, that he's the vine and you're the branches. That that's the type of connection he's talking about. Union, where he's the source and he provides his life to you. But you have to be connected to him as the source where his life flows into you and becomes your life. His goodness flows into you and becomes your goodness. His righteousness flows into you and becomes your righteousness. And as long as you're disconnected from him, whatever you're producing over here isn't real goodness and isn't real righteousness and isn't real love and isn't real obedience. It's a sham and it's a facade and really it's a mockery of God because you're pretending that it's what he wants. And what he wants is your heart to be connected to him. That you're using all of it as an excuse to keep yourself from connecting to him. That you look at yourself and be like, well, look at what I'm doing. I don't need that. I don't need a dying Savior on a cross. I don't need that brokenness. I don't need that death. Here's what I've got to offer God. And you're denying who he really is and who you really are. That goodness and righteousness only come from God. That heart-transforming work. And I was, this part of the story really stood out to me that and let's just sit here for a while as we wrap up today and get ready to head into the rest of worship. 23.11, just the summary that I thought about is Jesus makes a promise. So here Jesus comes to Paul. Paul, the former persecutor of the church. Like, don't forget, like just last chapter, Paul gave us his testimony. When he, he was saying, this is who I was. This is what I was doing when Jesus came and saved me. And again, like next week, he gives it again. Like He never stops talking about, this is who I was apart from Jesus. This is how far gone I was when Jesus came and grabbed hold of me. Like he never forgets who he was because it helps him remember the grace of Jesus to him. And so Jesus comes to that guy and makes this huge promise. Like, I'm going to take you to Rome. You will testify me, about me in Rome. And I want to tie it to this. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but remember where the whole book started. I put it down here at the end today because I thought we would come to it. When Jesus is about to go into heaven, here's the first promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So Jesus gives his church a promise. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he will give you the power you need. And there it is again. God will give you what you need to do what God's called you to do. If you're the source of it, you don't have this type of power. It must come from him. And then, so here's the promise. Here's what happens. You'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, to the end of the earth. There's a purpose. Right? Jesus gave his church a promise and a purpose. And you can say that's the whole book of Acts and that's the whole of church history right there. And so often we don't believe the power of this promise. We'd rather rely on ourselves and the power of what he's promised. And then so often we get distracted from this purpose and we, we're, we're about a hundred other things. Some of them that aren't that bad, but if they're not connected to Jesus, they're missing the purpose to make him known, to show people who he is, to bring people into relationship with him, for us to keep growing as his disciples and for more people to be growing as his disciples. This is the promise and the purpose that he gives us. And think about this, the ends of the earth. He's not, I, you're gonna, when I give you the power of my spirit, I'm going to use you to reach the whole world with this message, this great news. What's the name of the empire right now where Paul is living, like this, that time in the world? Roman Empire. Do you know why it's called that? Because Rome pretty much ruled the whole world. <laughs> where does Jesus say he's going to get Paul? The center of the known world. This is Jesus keeping the promise he made at the very beginning. And he's like, yeah, you know what? They arrested you, they opposed you, they've thrown you in prison. I'm going to use that to get you to the place that I was talking about in the very first chapter. 
that they're not thwarting Jesus' purposes here. He's actually going to use the Roman army <laughs> to move Paul where he wants Paul to be. He's like, Paul, I know that in all your travels, you wanted to go to Rome, like read Romans 1, and Paul says in Romans 1, he's like, he's like I've wanted to come to you, for, I've wanted to get there. Like to, to be a missionary in Rome, like where all the nations and all the cultures are converging in Rome and you can tell everybody about the gospel and send them back to all, like this is the ideal place for a missionary. He's like, but I've never been able to get there. Like Paul and all of his planning, all of his efforts can't get to Rome. Paul and his broken imprisonment, Jesus is like, I'll get you to Rome. <laughs> and I'll use the Roman army to escort you there. <laughs> it's Jesus' army. The Roman army is Jesus' army. So, so Jesus makes a promise. Just a couple of verses later, these, oh, these religious people, these, listen, these religious people are us. See your heart in this. They make their vow. 23, 14. So Jesus makes a promise. Religious people make a vow. We're not going to eat or drink till we kill Paul. All right? Here's our determination. Here's our self-effort. Here's our strength. I'm, here's my religious vow of this good thing I'm going to do. And here's my commitment. Here's how committed I am to the cause. <laughs> Jesus makes a promise to religious people, a promise of grace to Paul. Religious people make a vow of self-effort. Which one wins? Which one wins today? Just in this story today. Jesus. Do they kill Paul? What happens? Like here they are. They're, they're so determined. Like they, they focused all their energy on we're going to kill Paul. This makes me really. This just makes me laugh. So Paul's well, the son of Paul's sister. Paul's nephew, right? Hears about that they want to kill Paul. He tells the Tribune. The Tribune says, "Well, we got to protect Paul." So he called two of the centurions and said, "Get ready, two hundred soldiers." With 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen, take Paul all the way to Caesarea during the, and give him a horse to ride on. Jesus says, all right, here's your self-righteous religious vow. Here's my Roman army to thwart your vow because you're not going to stop my promise to Paul. I mean, do you see this? And, and don't get it, like the Roman army, the, the Roman, like they're just a, as opposed to Jesus as the Jews are. <laughs> they, it ends up being Roman emperors who kill Christians, like martyr them, because they won't say that Caesar is Lord. They say Jesus is Lord. So it's not like the Romans are friendly to Christianity, but Jesus is like, hey, I'll take one of my enemies and I'll use them to protect you against another of my enemies and I'll get you to where I said I was going to get you because Jesus always keeps his promises and nothing stops him. Like, see that that's who he is. And when it looks bad, that's still who he is. And when it looks even worse, that's still who he is. And it's like, okay, things are bad, and now they've piled bad up on top of bad, and Jesus is like, I'll take this bad, and I'll use it to fix both bads. I mean, that's, that's what's going on right there. Listen, there's always hope in your life when that's who Jesus is. There's always hope for the church when that's who Jesus is. And it, it just reminded me again, like just another picture well, first of all, I just wrote down here, Jesus is in control of the whole Roman army. Don't ever forget that they're his nations and his countries and his armies. Even when it looks like they're opposed to him. Even when they, they have no intention of doing what Jesus wants. And they can't stop Jesus from keeping his promises. They can't stop Jesus from fulfilling his purposes. But this picture of you got the Jews, and this is bad, and you got the Romans, this is bad, and you got Paul in prison. I mean, here's this missionary that's supposed to be fulfilling, he's supposed to be fulfilling Jesus' purpose for the church and reaching the ends of the earth with the gospel, and now he is shackled in prison. God uses Paul's shackles to set the gospel free. When Paul gets shackled, the missionary finally gets to Rome with the gospel. 
Like the thing that Paul couldn't accomplish with his own freedom. He just never could make it there. Something always stopped him, but nothing can stop God. And it's not that God gets the gospel there in spite of Paul's shackles. That would be great enough, right? God's stronger than the shackles. God conquers the shackles and he gets Paul. It's not that. God uses the shackles to get Paul there. It's Paul the prisoner who gets sent to Rome. Like on trial. It's because he got arrested, because he's in prison, because nobody will listen to him, because they wouldn't set him free for two years, that he ends up in Rome and gets to testify about Jesus there. So it's not just, it's not just that Jesus will step in and be stronger than the worst moment in your life. He is. It's that Jesus will step in and he will redeem the worst moment in your life and he will use it for his greatest good. Like that is the ingredient that he uses. And it just that picture again of redemption. That you don't, you don't have to chuck your worst moments. You don't have to say, well, if it hadn't been for that, then maybe this. Not with Jesus. You can say, because of that, this. Jesus took that and he's doing this. Because Paul had opposed Jesus so fiercely to start with, Paul understood how great Jesus' grace was to him. And he was better able, better able to teach the gospel than he could have been otherwise. And then because the Jews opposed Paul so strongly that they would imprison him, it was because of that that Jesus got Paul to Rome. That's what he used. And that's why in Romans 8 it doesn't just say that you'll be conquerors. It says more than conquerors. It's not just take your worst moments and take the worst things that have happened to you and your biggest weaknesses and your biggest failures and God will help you conquer all that in the gospel, which would be great. It's God will make you more than a conqueror. Not just that you'll conquer it, but those things will turn into the very tools that God redeems and uses in your life to make it better than it could have been otherwise as you watch his plan unfold. And I don't know what that timetable will be for you. I say it, in 30 seconds right there. But listen, two years for Paul. Do you know how long those two years are? And I would guess that some of you feel like you've been sitting in the dark for a really long time. That you've been in that cell for a really long time and you're worn out and you're tired and you're starting to wonder, did he say this? Is he doing this? And this morning I just want to remind you that he always keeps his promises. He is always with you. And whatever you're going through, it's not too big for him. The Roman army was not too big for him. The Roman army served his purposes. The Roman army, opposed to his missionary, keeping his missionary in prison, served his purposes. I promise you he can handle what's going on in your life. And I promise you that he is with you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad you said that because let me scroll back up here first of all to what Adam was saying earlier. God's gracious to give us what we need when we need it. I wanted to revisit that. I want to talk about what you're saying. We're going to wrap up. So one of two things either happen. You know, they take this vow. We're not going to eat or drink until we kill Paul. They don't kill Paul, right? Jesus stops them, thwarts their plans. When you make religious vows in your own strength, and a lot of times it's just like, it's so weird because we call it repentance, but we'll come and say, God, I know I did this wrong. I messed this up. But I promise I'm going to do better now. Do you realize that isn't turning from yourself to God? That's just saying, I'm going to be a better version of myself now. That's not, I can't rely on myself, I've got to rely on you. It's just, I didn't do real well here, but I'm going to try to do better. God doesn't want you to do better. God wants you to die. Like, to be crucified with him. Like, your life will never be the life that he calls you to have and never be the life that he wants to give you. His life is the life that he wants to give you. And so these religious people make their vow. Right? And one of two things either happens. Either at some point they break their vow because they don't kill Paul and they're like, well, we got to eat. <laughs> or they die from their own vow. 
either you will not live up to your own religion, like this Christless apart from Jesus religion, at some point you'll be like, I can't do it. I've got to eat. Or it will kill you. That's all that man-made, no Jesus religion can offer you. Something that you can't do and you give up or something that kills you because you try until it takes everything from you. And Jesus offers you something so different in his gospel, in his religion. He says, yeah, you have to die. You've got to die to that thing that would have killed you. And then I won't kill you. I'll make you alive. I will resurrect you. I will bring you to life. And yeah, I know you can't do it. I know, that, but I can and I'll do it for you, and I'll do it in you. I will give myself to you. He offers to do for you the thing that you can't do, to give you what you don't have, and then to give you life in him that's not found anywhere else. Like, it couldn't be more polar opposite. And so, yeah, like, they either broke the vow because they couldn't live up to their own vows, or their vow killed them. That is what man-made religion does to you, apart from the gospel. And then this piece here, about God is gracious to give us what we need when we need it. I've had this illustration in my mind for like a month now. Um, we took the girls down to Florida to visit some really good friends of mine that I'd, I'd served on the church staff with them there like 15 years ago. It was last month. And they, they live on a river and they had two jet skis. And we were out there one day on the two jet skis. And all these dolphins started swimming like all around, like from me to Keith's keyboard. I mean, like really, really close. They were popping up and... And it was really fun. But then they would go, so, you know, they'd be swimming this way, and they would go under, and you're thinking, well, they're going to pop up, you know, 15 more feet that way, and so you kind of keep following. Well, then they pop up, like, you know, they've gone underneath and swam under you and turned around, and they're never where you expect them to be. And it was like God was just started whispering to me while we were out there. And I could hear it. It was just like, oh, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I do. He's like, you're watching, and you think you know. You think you know what's going on. You don't see any of the stuff that's really going on underneath the water. And so then you follow your plans and your thoughts and, what, and you end up in the totally wrong place. So that was the first piece of it. Well, then we started noticing there's all these birds circling. And dolphins are going this way, we ride this way, and all of a sudden the birds would dive over here. Well, wherever the birds would dive, turned out the dolphins were there. And so it took us about 10 minutes to decide, you know what? I'm not going to go where I think the dolphins are anymore. I'm going to go where I see the birds. And every time we did, the dolphins were right there. It didn't look like it's where they should be. Like, there's no way this is the right place. There's no way that we should turn a 180 right now, go the wrong direction, and go way further than we think we should. Like They were right here. How are they all the way over there? And every single time they were there. And it was like God whispered to me again. He was like, I don't show up where you expect me to. Like, you think you know how this thing should go. And here's how we think in the religious world. I'll make my vows. I'll try real hard. I'll make my promises. I'll do the best I can. And, and if, like Paul used to be, if we're really strong and really flashy and achieve a lot and have a lot to offer God, and if it all looks really good, like if all the numbers are going in the right direction and we've got more people and more money and more facilities, like God must be there. And how many times do we chase our plans and we have all that and that's not where he is at all? And then what he whispered to me, the last thing he said to me was, you want to know where I show up every single time? When there's brokenness when there's weakness, when there's neediness, when there's dependence. He's not drawn to your strength and your self-reliance and your self-effort. In his love and compassion and mercy, he's drawn to your emptiness and your brokenness and your neediness. And what he's basically saying was, brokenness, emptiness, neediness, that's those birds. Find that, go to that, and I'll be there. And that's exactly what he did with Paul right here. Paul is shackled. He can't do what he thinks he's supposed to do. The worst thing for a missionary who thinks my job is to travel 
for Jesus and tell people about Jesus is to be thrown in prison where you can't travel and tell people about Jesus. He's got nothing to offer Jesus right now in terms of what he thinks he's supposed to be doing. And in his darkest moment, his moment, the the most opposition, failure of everything he's supposed to accomplish, Jesus shows up there. He's like, take courage, I'm with you. I'm going to get this done. I didn't need you to do this for me. I'm going to do this for you. I'll get you to Rome. It's where he shows up. He shows up in your hardest moments. He shows up in your darkest moments. He's there. And that to us, that doesn't look like how it should happen. That doesn't look like what the plan should be. But I promise you, if we just keep going our direction and doing what we expect and we assume and we never look up and check with him, we'll end up somewhere that he's not. And it'll look right to us. And he won't be there. But you keep looking to him. You keep looking up and saying, hey, I have no idea how in the world it should be here. And it should look like this. That makes no sense. That doesn't fit with where we were just headed. But I see you and I know this is what you do. So I'm going to go where you are. And you'll find that he's right every single time. That he never leads you astray. That he always keeps his promises. So I want you to see that about him this morning. I want you to believe that. I want you to see that's who Jesus is. You can trust him. You can trust him with your life. You can trust him with your brokenness. You can trust him with your neediness. You can trust him with your failure. You can trust him with your sin. You can trust him with his church. You can trust him with the way that he wants to build his church and the people that he wants to use and the things he wants to do that don't make any sense at all. You can trust that he's going to accomplish what he says. And I want us to trust him that way, to be faithful, full of faith. We say, we believe you. You do what you say. You you show us. You take us where you want us to go. And so I'm going to pray that for us right now. And we're going to sing, and and I pray these songs will be a declaration that we are trusting, that we believe that this is what he's doing. So pray with me, and then we are going to have elders, staff, wives down here. If you want to pray with somebody or talk to somebody, or if you just want to come and kneel on these steps to pray during this next song, you're more than welcome to do that as well. Uh, But stand with me right now, and we'll pray as our worship team comes, and then we'll sing together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that when Paul sat in prison almost 2,000 years ago and it seemed like there was no way for him to do anything he was supposed to be doing, that there was no way that he could know that today you would redeem that just a little bit more by using it to teach us about you. That somebody gets to walk out of here today with hope and that we get to walk out with a deeper faith in Jesus and a recognition of how Jesus works in our lives because of this dark moment in Paul's life 2,000 years ago help us to trust you with those moments in our lives help us to trust you in those moments in our lives help us to keep seeing you build this faith in us build your church in this way We need you to do it, Father. We can't. Only you can. We admit that. Give us the faith to believe that and declare it right now. We need you. We rely on you. We trust you. Father, give to us what you want from us and give it all in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.